fake skydiving on top of a huge fan. Oh yeah, those are with cool. like a grid so you don't yeah. get chopped up. You know, it's not like a human blender, <laughs> but you can just yeah, it's pretty cool. No human blenders here, guys. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Inconclusive, the podcast where we randomly select topics and argue about them. Coming up Inconclusive, my name is James. My name is Abigail. And my name is Candace. All three of us are educators at an international school in Taiwan and bring wildly different perspectives to the table. It is important to note that our individual opinions do not necessarily reflect those of our employer. Okay, let's begin. Welcome, everyone. We are talking this week still in our series on space, and that was the opening um, melody from Doctor Who, one of my yeah. all-time favorite TV shows. That is you can just space. go ahead and rewind and listen to that again, listeners. <laughs> just that little soundbite. That's that's my it's gift all to that you. Matters. It's true. Uh, so this week we're talking about ownership of outer space. Who do you think should own outer space? So to start, we need to define our terms. Outer space is the physical universe beyond Earth's atmosphere. Ownership specifically is the act, state, or right of possessing something. And possessing meaning the state of having, owning, or controlling something, which I think the controlling part is the key in that above definition. So opening thoughts for everybody. How do we feel about the idea of owning space? Well, it makes me feel uncomfortable to think that private organizations or entities could control space. I imagine like some, some <laughs> like Doofenshmirtz Evil Incorporated, right? <laughs> Has a little thing up in one of the planets and you pointing his laser say, down at us. You cannot say the title and not sing it. We have already established show melodies are open in this segment. Oh dear. Doofenshmirtz Evil Incorporated. Beautiful. Well done. Uh, it makes me nervous that governments could own space. Ah, <laughs> uh, here we are. Because I, uh, I think in general governments aren't that trustworthy. And their resources are dependent on their constituents. Mm, that's true. true. Yeah. I picked this topic because uh, it came up in a YouTube video I saw a while back. And it's just stuck with me as a weird idea because it, it, it I feel like in most dystopian novels, sci-fi, the question of ownership is never... It's never really about countries owning a like space fleet. It's always it's always for the most part a private company mm -hmm. doing something other than the times when they're fighting aliens. Then it'll be America, send your spaceships <laughs> up and kill the aliens and America's always the good guy in a space alien battle, which is I don't know. Hopeful. I mean, you want to pick the strongest military. It's so true. We do have the strongest that's military. That's the strongest military right now. Yep, number 1 in the world for military spending. Yay. And quality. And quality. True, true. So I guess also another piece of context that I should bring into this is the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. So about 10 years prior to that, a committee got together with the UN and started rehashing what the, this should look like. And a decade later, the Space Treaty was born. Basically, no country can lay claim to the moon, asteroids, or any other celestial body. Space is open to all for exploration. We're not going to really talk about exploration, though it may come up in the conversation. We're just talking about ownership. Um, the language of the early treaty is very grand. It mentions space as a province for all mankind. Mm. So um, another couple of points I want to bring out from the treaty. The exploration and use of outer space will be carried out for the benefit and in the interest of all nations. And like I said, province for all mankind. It should be free for exploration. It's not subject to national appropriation or ownership. So nations can't own it. It's not subject to, um, oh, it shall not place nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction in outer space by states. Mm. They're, they're not allowed to put nuclear weapons on the moon there's not like a little Russian sector. They have to keep their weapons in their country. Um, but can you clarify something real quick? Yes. Part of that is that a state or governing can't mm -hmm. order it to happen. They can't place their weapons outside of their country but in a space. private organization could put their privately non 
weapons in space. Bingo. That is a thing that could happen. I think it's interesting that the nu- the clause for nuclear weapons is in there because, like, the historical setting of this treaty mm. makes sense for that. You know, height of the Cold War, mm. you, you know, U.S. and USSR going to space, and I think the idea of space wars was like a real possibility. And so you have all these movies, you know, coming out with mm-hmm. fighting in space. So just 100%. an interesting little historical connection there for our listeners. Thank you, history teacher. You're welcome. Another couple of facts from the treaty. Astronauts are regarded as representatives of humanity by all nations and shall be given all possible assistance in the event of an accident or emergency, which is why if an astronaut landed in the ocean nowhere near their originating country, every country jumps into aid that mm. is around them and sends them back to their home country. That's it's, cool. It kind of protects them. It's like international insurance or I guess astronomical insurance. I don't <laughs> know if it goes that way. Uh, states shall be responsible for national space activities, whether carried out by governmental or non-governmental entities. This is the only part of it that I could find that relates Refer- to anything yeah, that could be a private company. Okay. What yeah. does it say though? The government does what for them or to them? The direct quote is states parties to the treaty shall bear international responsibility for national activities in outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, whether such activities are carried on by governmental agencies or non-governmental agencies, and for assuring that national activities are carried out in conformity with the provisions set forth in the present treaty. So if anything bad goes down, it's the country of origins problem mm. but okay. everyone needs to help they modeled i think they modeled that after ships mm. in the ocean because you know you fly a flag and that's technically you know like your port of origin mm-hmm. but then when you're in open waters what happens on your ship is technically the jurisdiction of that country yeah yeah that's like but then if you sink then it's like oh well help a brother out <laughs> in yeah. the water Help a brother yeah. in the water. That's right. Or sister. True. Female sailors exist. Hashtag female sailors. Abigail's dying. Right? I mean, I think <laughs> they do exist. I mean, I've, I mean, they do exist. They do exist, right? Like they're unicorns. I, mean, I don't think they're unicorns. I have a friend who has served in the U.S. Navy. That's nice. That would be a female sailor on a ship. Boom. Done. Cool. This reminds me of The Martian, the book and movie where uh, the astronaut explores the implications of being in his rover on Mars and then being outside of the rover, being in the hub and being outside of the hub and saying that when he... Mm, when he's takes, in it, that, yeah. Yeah, whenever he takes someone else's piece of um, equipment without permission from that country, then he's technically a pirate because yep. he's in international waters. <laughs> That's right. It was, I thought that was pretty funny. But this is in that same area of law that's so... Uh, problematic apparently right now because it is entirely gray on the subject other than that one mention of mm. and the nations have to help if something goes wrong with a company in space or non-governmental agency it really doesn't mention anything about private enterprise hmm. oh a couple other things states are liable for damage caused by their space objects so if someone's satellite goes down it's that country's responsibility hmm. and uh, states retain ownership and jurisdiction over any object they launch into outer space. That makes sense. That does make sense. I feel like my position stays and maybe is even a little bit more nervous around private ownership because there really isn't anything good around how to control that or how to manage that as of right now. I think that if private ownership is going to become a thing, it really needs to get like worked out. There mm. needs to be some sort of an international agreement as to how that needs to look, like what can't exist in outer space. Because again, it's really easy to have a private company that's working in cahoots with someone who's taking all the private through corporation, shell or, or otherwise legitimate or not, be able to place weapons that are used to mm. defend their country of origin, even though they're not government sanctioned Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um and that makes me i think the most nervous that does that i never thought of that implication yeah that a private corporation would like lay claim to a part of space yeah they like go to mars and they're like hey now we're putting up these lasers or whatever weapon. Yeah. We'll shoot you if you <laughs> we'll try shoot to land you. here. And then they're monitoring. And then because owner of the corporation and 
president or or dictator or person of a country, um, our friends or whatever, they'd be mm-hmm. like, oh, my friend's got some weapons in space, Mars lasers. you know, and then you're in some sort of a conflict and it'd be real easy, real tempting, I think, you know, to, yeah. to take, to lay claim to that, right? I feel like if there are valuable resources on Mars that are being harvested, both private corporations and countries would be interested. Mm. And I think either one of these would be capable of storing weapons against what the treaty stipulates, Mm. right? Like, I mean, if you're a country that is uh, bent on dominating the Martian rock trade and (laughs) you're the only one there right now, it's easy to shoot lasers at people who are flying, you know? So I don't necessarily think that just because it's a private corporation makes it somehow more likely and more susceptible to wanting to monopolize those resources. Because I think... I think it makes it more likely, though, because of where the resources are, like where the monetary resources are coming from. I should say that resource gathering slash harvesting is totally fair game with the treaty. It's it's built on the same model as... think of it like oil rigs on the ocean Mm. that oil rigs don't own the water that flows underneath them but they do own the oil that they pull from underneath the water so it's the same principle for space their countries could do the same which is why we have moon rocks that were taken from the moon and brought back to earth they weren't just meteors so harvesting isn't the the issue as far as anyone's concerned but we're thinking of it as the application or even the motive behind private ownership And with that, we are going to take a quick break. Welcome to Currently Reading with Abigail. Today's book is The Pale Face Lie, A True Story by David Crow. David Crow and his siblings grew up on the Navajo Indian Reservation idolizing their dad, a self-taught Cherokee who loved to tell his children about his time in the army during World War II. As he grew up, David began to learn about the other side of his father, the ex-con with his own code of ethics that justified cruelty, violence, lies, and murder. Controlling David through beatings, his father forced his son to do his bidding during criminal activities. David's mom was too mentally ill to care for her children, much less protect them. Through sheer determination and an amazing track coach, David managed to get into college and achieve professional success. Despite its intensity, The Pale Face Lie is an incredible read and look into the lives of children living in abusive situations. The book is raw and powerful while being an inspirational story about the power of forgiveness and the strength of the human spirit. See you next time! And welcome back, listeners. In the last segment, we were talking about the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. We talked about uh, the current level of ownership in space, which is nobody, but that harvesting is still fair game. Abigail shared a fear of um, companies being shell corporations, having weapons out in outer space that could work for governments of, of like a specific nation. And this time around, I want us to think about... Uh, specifically private enterprise, like we've talked about with the last segment, does it violate the Outer Space Treaty? So I think maybe it would be helpful if you kind of define what you mean by the private enterprise. Do you mean like building, you know, your factory or whatever on Mars to be able to process Mars rocks or Mm -hmm. whatever? Do you mean like the International Space Station? I know that they're thinking about privatizing that. Um, right where you buy your ticket to go up and then you... Whoa. Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> so expensive. 30000 US a day. A day. Wow. And you have to buy your own ticket. So then our on a Russian space four shuttle. years of college or four days in space. That's a That's trade. true. That is a hey, trade. Four I days mean, in space. I wonder what the prep would be like to get you ready for it. I wonder if they would go through the same process that like NASA did with astronauts. That's checks? the problem with <laughs> when you start to talk, think about things being privatized. Mm-hmm. Some of those securities and things that are to make sure that people stay safe come because governments want to protect Sometimes, sometimes not their people, right? Or the things that are happening. So some of those things that happened with the astronauts at NASA was to make sure that America's astronauts stayed safe. And now that it's no longer America's people and you're paying to go on a thing and it's a money gathering thing. Like it makes me think of uh, Mount Everest. So you can hike Mount Everest and hire someone to carry your stuff, right? You hire um, 
some sort of a like a guide a yeah, mountain guide like a guide or, and they'll yeah. help and they can carry some of them will even carry everything for you so wow. you just walk nice with nothing well, with your o- own oxygen and that's it and they'll carry all of your stuff and get it all set up for you can they carry you <laughs> i'm sure it happens <laughs> but nice. I, I put you on like a litter just, yeah. can just carry you up. you up. But because of that, there's been cases of increased death mm. because people, and because the visas are really expensive to go. It's like an incredible amount of money, like 60 grand just for the visa to be able to get into Nepal, to be able to hike Everest. It's a crazy expensive visa. Um, they're letting people in who are not in really good condition because mm. they're getting the money for the guide. They're paying for a guide. Maybe they're buying their gear in Nepal. It helps their economy like all of these things where there's kind of a shady overlook towards the type of people through these corporations that are being willing that, uh, that these private enterprises are willing to take. And there's been different deaths that have been caused because maybe the human in of themselves who's wanting to pay for this experience is not appropriately fit to be able to be hiking Mount Everest. So you're talking about the guides are dying or the tourists who the, are paying are dying? The people who are paying are dying. I mean... I mean, I'm sure the guides are... Some guides are to dying, To me, too. that's like... Don't but be an idiot. But if you're I mean, being told, you know I mean? but you're being told that it's going to be okay, right? Like oh, it'll be fine because they get want you, you. To. Oh, right? Okay. And so the same thing uh-huh. for space, right? Like that's to me an yeah. analogy, right? Oh, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. Three thirty thousand a day, yeah. right? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, fine, sign me up for four days, yeah. and uh, and then how is your body going to react Mm. in the process, right? Yeah. I don't think private corporations should have unlimited freedom in how they do space travel or space harvesting. Yeah, I think the safety of people is important. Like, I mean, right now, if you're a private corporation, you know, shouldn't be able to put your customer in harm's way under a lie. You know, Mm. I mean, I I don't think that's legal, right? That's not... I think it depends, right? Because of where your origin is from. Yeah. Because we're not but just I talking... But I feel like whenever you do something risky, they always make you sign a waiver. It's like, I acknowledge the risks. And then I wonder if, like, this guide, or even if you go, you know, if you are if you take a plane into, you know, orbit or whatever, and then there's a waiver that you sign that's like, I acknowledge that I get paying this amount, that there are these risks. And I think it would be in the best interests of the company to disclose those yeah, and say, yeah. you know, this might happen to you That's true. in terms of their like, cause if they send a plane up and it blows up, their company's tanked. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's in their best business interest to make that process. As known. Tra- exactly. And to make it safe. But to be fair, there's already precedent in the food industry in the U S for regular, um, removal of truth in mm-hmm. presenting the product. For example, the dozens of names for sugar that companies hide their sugar content under in order for to trick people into buying their food thinking that it doesn't have any sugar or, or that it's the, healthy it's or that it's healthy. healthier yeah. yeah like misleading labels and uh, claiming things as like uh, whole wheat or anything else mm-hmm. that it's not actually that thing they've they've just taken one piece of a phrase that's mm-hmm. technically true mm-hmm. with yeah. the rest of the things that are consequences of it still also true so I mean I think as the consumer in the market you have to i mean i think it's a balance like i don't think corporations should be lying about what they're putting in you know because like if a drink says no fat and it has like 80 grams of sugar technically no fat is true mm-hmm. right but they're kind of it's a marketing it is trick to get you to buy it yeah so i mean i think as a consumer in the market you also have to be aware and be knowledgeable about what you're purchasing and the risks that involved are involved in going to space or hiking Mount Everest or drinking, uh, you know, those whatever fruit smoothies that have, you know, 90 <laughs> grams of sugar in them. Very true. But have no fat. That is important. Yeah. I, the, the, your conversation about um, corporations potentially doing something that could cause uh, consequences down the line, mm-hmm. it made me think of a short story that I read in ninth grade called The Sound of Thunder. Mm. by Ray Bradbury. Ray mm. Bradbury is amazing. I love but in, that in this In this short story, it's like the year 2055 and time travel is like a practical reality and a company called Time Safari Incorporated offers everyone who can afford it to go back in time and hunt exotic animals like dinosaurs in the Cretaceous period or in the or in the late Cretaceous period. Periods. They can kill a T-Rex or whatever else. And at some point, 
there's this path that all these wealthy people have been transported and told they have to stay on the path. And one of them accidentally kills a butterfly. They step off the path and kills Uh, a butterfly. uh And by the time they come back, it has totally wrecked wrecked the entire universe. Mm -hmm. Everything is thrown off. The the world is in war. Everything is like going up in flames. And it's because of the butterfly effect, essentially. Mm -hmm. And... My I, my concern, I think now, after thinking about what Abigail suggested earlier with companies either hiding or withholding information because they want to make money or being uh, used by countries to pull off nefarious schemes of some sort, is that the butterfly effect of our, of our actions in space, we don't necessarily know everything that could happen, what, what kind of things that could go wrong if like a company that ha- owns a third of the moon, suddenly they have a really bad electrical fire because they cut corners in their last, um, whatever you call it, their, their last... Uh, like fire inspection exactly, or something. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and whereas if it was a national thing, then there would be very clear laws held out by every country abides by the laws that they have. But to their, so because well, their but there would be precedent for governance though, because then if you, because then if there's some sort of an international agreement mm-hmm. saying that if you do these things, these are the regulations along, we could have some international police officers or whatever we want to call them. The who Galactic are able, Federation. So obviously I think, uh, <laughs> who are going around and making sure that these things are being met. Will it always be done a hundred percent well or fairly? Of course not, because we are sinful, fallen human people and (laughs) selfishness is a thing. But I think it makes it better than just saying, hey, for your own gain and interest, eh, figure it out and don't lie to your consumers. You know, there's some sort of a thing that you're accountable to, something that you're being held accountable to. I think international organizations don't have concrete power because they're only as strong as their strongest member. If, for example, we have international police uh, I think there would be a lot of problems with that to begin with because... Cross-cultural Cross-cultural. I mean, not even beyond cross-cultural things, like whose laws are you going to enforce? Mm. Are you going to write a new set of international laws? A new set of so international then, laws. So then who gets to decide that, right? The strongest country because they have the most influence in this international organization. And if they don't write... Like, this happened... I mean... This happened with like the League of Nations when mm. they first tried in nineteen, mm. you know, after World War One. Uh, like Japan was part of it, and then Japan started expanding, and then the League of Nations told Japan, "Hey, stop colonizing all of East Asia." And Japan was like, "Nope," and they left. And the League of Nations could do nothing, right? So, like, an international organization is only effective to the point that it's able to influence countries. Mm. Mm. And if these countries don't care, and if, like, for example, if I don't know. Like, let's say the U.S. maintains its relative, like, global, global superpower, you know, military and economically. And let's say they get into a disagreement with China about this set of laws, mm. and the U.S. just like leaves the whatever Boy, that'd the be international fun. council. Let's call it that, right? So they just leave, and now what? Mm. Right now, it's the U.S. versus the rest of the world. But then all of the U.S. allies will leave. So then it's the Cold War again. You know what I mean? Mm. So I feel like when countries get involved, it's dependent on so many factors that there's a lot more room for potential conflict that can't be resolved without war. So I think then that the AI aliens that are inhabiting these (laughs) planets from last episode, they should run the International Space Station. (laughs) And with that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And welcome to the segment called Words Are Hard with Candace, where I share an interesting word or phrase. Today's word is irenic. Irenic, the adjective form of the word, means aiming or aimed at peace. Irenics, the noun form, means relating to a part of Christian theology concerned with reconciling different denominations and groups. It comes from the Greek erin, meaning peace. Vincent Cunningham, a writer for The New Yorker, used this word in an April 2020 story called Will Pope Francis Cause a Schism in the Catholic Church? He writes the following. 
In his position at the Times, Ross Douthat is an essentially, if covertly, evangelistic writer, and he is most convincing when his tone is ironic, funny, and self-deprecating, and when he is willing to trade small, stubborn differences for broader agreements. Ironic. And welcome back, listeners. Before the break, Abigail mentioned her theory that all the AI aliens that we've created in this alternate universe that is our podcast world, these AI aliens should um, help with our Galactic Federation police system. But you need to go back and listen to the last episode to get how I really feel about the so AI aliens. So scientifically speaking, a theory requires evidence in order to formulate. <laughs> this is just a myth. Go ahead. <laughs> My evidence is that we haven't found them yet. Great. You, you got me. They're there. Lack of evidence. <laughs> You got me on the alien thought, and I wanted to share something from earlier. So my uh, summary of the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, I got it from the Royal Museums of Greenwich, which, by the way, is uh, is where um, the Royal Observatory, which holds the Prime Meridian, is, as mm. well as the National Maritime Museum. Cool. And that location was used to film Thor, The Dark World, in 2013. And so there was our first alien strike. Second alien strike I have for you is a bizarre quote that on the surface seems innocuous, but sounds very much like this professor is saying that there are aliens. Because there are. This, this professor, Ian Crawford, he uh, is a professor of planetary science at Birkbeck College in the University of London. And he gets quoted in a ton of the space law articles mm. that are asking about who owns space. And he said, for scientific reasons... Some areas of the moon are sites of special scientific interests and should be preserved and protected from commercial activities. Yeah. There's an alien base on the dark side of the moon. <laughs> I feel like I've established this. I feel like, why are we doing this again? <laughs> we already did this for, okay. So besides that, I want to go back to private companies that are currently doing things in space. So we have uh, SpaceX, which is owned by Elon Musk, the founder of PayPal, which I did not know that's how he, one of the things that made him famous was PayPal. I thought he was just owning things from the backside and you never knew what all of the ways that he was making money, but he was the founder of PayPal. Um, wow. Also, Intuitive Machines and Boeing, which I didn't really think about the fact that Boeing makes Boeing that makes go a, most of, of the U.S. Air Force planes. Really? Yeah. Huh. Well, some of them, not most. There's there's several other companies. Mm. Yeah. And one more company that's doing fun things: Virgin Galactic. They are making suborbital tourist space planes that are technically only in space for about five to six minutes, but you can pay to go up and quote-unquote, float for a few minutes. It's all those videos you see of people spinning around in low gravity. That's what that company is. Sounds That's awesome. really cool. Yeah. I don't know if I would want to do that, though. What? Because it's... You're just so disoriented. Like, you're just bouncing around everywhere. It's like... But it's like flying. Yeah, but you. But how they'd make it happen is, like, the plane is dropping really oh, fast. Oh, no, it wouldn't be And then that. going back up and then dropping again and then going back up. And that so sounds like a nausea. Wait, not, wait, not the Virgin Galactic. I thought that that's what they do because that's how those those low... Well, because once you get high enough, gravity, yeah, mean, gravity I decreases as you go higher. It's true, but, I, like, I think that, like, at least one of the companies that does that whole you can pay and go up in space and kind of float around in low gravity... They do it by the plane dropping over and over, and yes, showing or making you feel that, like that simulates it. Yeah, that's like do you can do uh, you can do like fake skydiving on top of a huge fan. Oh yeah, those are with cool. like a grid so you don't yeah. get chopped up. You know, it's not like Classic. a human blender, <laughs> but you can just yeah, it's pretty cool. No human blenders <laughs> here, guys. I feel like that would be really awesome to go up there. Uh, random tangent: I wonder if flat earthers would go up. If they were like, this is fundamentally against what I believe, you know? If you are a flat earther, please, <laughs> please give us your offended. opinion yeah, on sorry. this. I'm really curious. This is a really good question. Mm. Like, if you go up into outer space, would you? Would you? Would it be a way or that I feel to like test they, your theory? They'd probably be proved wrong. I mean, right? for sure. Because we're, that's, that's exactly what a round earther would say. Sure. But I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> giving away. My, I guess I'm not objective here. <laughs> Whatever, whatever shape you think the world is. At what you know? point in your life are you objective about whether or not the earth is flat or round? Like, when do you formulate the idea that 
we live on a round planet. I feel like when your teacher is like, here's a globe, this is what... Well, I think when you're a kid and you take a plane halfway around the world (laughs) and it's like, okay, that makes sense. Unique experience. I am speaking from experience of flying because, you know, once you get up there, sometimes you can... It's a little... Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's true. There is a plane in the U.S. Air Force that gets high. It flies at like... Mach 3 something, oh, which wow. is like three times the speed of sound. Wow. Gets up there and you can see the curvature of the earth. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. They can fly faster than missiles. Wow. Which is why they... Oh, why none they of, exist. None of the... None of the, they're called the blackbirds. None oh, of them yeah. have been shot down by... You know, they've been in Vietnam, Iraq, anywhere. Not been shot down. Sounds I, like some alien technology. <laughs> Abigail was talking a last episode, I think, about in a documentary on Netflix that mentions it's called Blackbirds. Unacknowledged. <laughs> and it mentions Blackbird, like the the planes being bar or having borrowed alien technology in some way. Yep, from the Roswell crash. You in can New actually Mexico. watch a video of the technology explained on YouTube. I just watched it earlier today, actually. Hmm. Channel called Real Engineering. Really appreciate your stuff, dude. You're do you awesome. Really appreciate. I do really appreciate it. Mm. So, with <laughs> with these companies, a couple of other things have come up. SpaceX, for example, um, NASA. Whenever they retired their space fleet in 2011, uh, SpaceX essentially said that they were going to buy off their spare parts. Kind of like if uh, the U.S. or if the bank impounded, or not impounded, if the bank uh, foreclosed on your house and they would sell everything inside of your house for Mm -hmm. money. Kind of the same way. SpaceX came in and said, this is my garage sale. I'm going to buy what I want from your company. And NASA said that they were just transitioning their uh, program and vision over to inspiring people on the ground, which is a very sad way to talk about NASA being permanently grounded. But they claim that they were helping with other types of technology and that SpaceX is taking over the manned flight into space part. It's about money <laughs> or lack thereof. Because it's, it's hard to fund a government program. It's true. It's really hard to fund a government program because but, those change. Government's priorities change. Their constituents' priorities change. Mm-hmm. But if you have a company that's specifically focused on achieving a goal, your stakeholders are specifically investing in that goal and not in a generic United States government or whatever government, right? And so a privately funded company's financial direction is usually a lot easier to predict and control than a government's. You know, I generally hate the privatization of things. (laughs) See episode two. Mm-hmm. Um, but all I really like the talks. way that you explained that. I thought that was, that's really, that's so true though, right? Because if you, if you are an entity that is focused on space travel, then like you said, the stakeholders, you're accountable to them. That's who you're right. accountable to. And you're not necessarily bound by geopolitical issues, right? right? Like the uh, Syrian refugee crisis, right, is affecting the U.S. and we have this influx of, or it, even Europe, right? Yeah. You've got this influx of immigrants. Your government's got to divert resources to deal right, with that. Right. Where does that money come from? Well, we're taking it away from Something innovation, else. right? So that income is always flexible year by year. And, you know, governments shut down, governments go to war, mm-hmm. governments do this and that and that. And then, they you know, this, there's a ton of, well, there's a lot of bureaucracy too, right, right to right. get funding for things. And so... I mean, if SpaceX's devoted purpose is to get to space and do cool space things, and you are a rich person, that's what you're interested in supporting. The down, or the not the downside, but maybe the what do we do ramifications of that though are let's say that um, James decided that he wanted to build a. Another building somewhere on our school property, and this building is owned by James, or he built it as a part of one of his classes, and then James leaves, and people say, "Well, so now what do we use it for?" And James says, "Oh, I want it to still be used by me or my classes because they built it with me, and it's my wish that it be used this way." But now James is gone, so who gets to actually decide? its current use if the original owner is left it's not like it's not like a will or anything that James Well I mean can it's kind of like when a like a uh important graduate of some school donates money for mm-hmm. the construction of a laboratory or whatever and then it's like okay I'd like for this building to be used specifically to 
further the field that I studied, you know? True. I mean, so, I think that's okay. So then what about so, the International uh, yeah, w- Space Station? Because the space, sta- space Station was a $100 billion project by American citizen taxes. And there was almost a point where there wasn't an American astronaut on the space station, mm-hmm. which would be really embarrassing for a $100 billion project to not have any of its citizens sitting inside of it while it's floating around in space, a giant lab that was going to be manned by astronauts from Russia or from other countries. If it that's embarrassing, no the U.S. is always really embarrassing because the U.S. gives so much money to the entire world. So I wanted to bring it back to the the whole original comment of like Abigail and and James, you were discussing Mm. government ownership of space or international ownership of space versus privatized ownership of space. But I feel like the dark side of the government ownership of space is going back to the treaty. The fact that 129 countries, including China, the Russia, the UK, and the US have committed to the treaty, but it's, and it's overseen by the UN office for outer space affairs. But that number is different in two, two or three different articles that I found. And it's because they, the number of countries, the number of countries, Uh they, they say either it's 109 or they say 129. And they say, when they say the 109 countries, they say 20 countries have, uh, agreed to it, but haven't been ratified yet. So I would assume countries that aren't considered countries by the UN are in that 20 chunk, which is concerning. This is the problem with international groups, like what James was saying earlier, of whichever government is biggest in a, a an international conversation could keep other governments from being able to help. Taiwan is a country. The Republic of China is a country. Taiwan is an island. Let's take a break. (laughs) Welcome to Jokes and Jocular Facts with James. Today's joke is, how do you get a farm girl to like you? A tractor. Today's jocular fact is, playing dance music can help ward off mosquitoes. Playing electronic dance music could be just what you need to scare away those pesky mosquitoes in the summer. According to one 2019 study published in the journal Acta Topica, the Skrillex song Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites combines very high and very low frequencies as well as excessive loudness and constantly escalating pitch that discourages the yellow fever mosquito from biting victims and mating. This has been Jokes and Jocular Facts with James. We'll catch you next time. And we're back. I left you all with a point about the UN and the fact that even the treaty itself, the numbers of countries that have ratified it are different depending on if you're including the countries that are ratified by the UN or not, which is a problem in international suggestion of policing or laws or international federation of any sort. What are your thoughts? I think that the way that space should be kind of governed, if that's the direction we're heading with this thought exercise, right, is that it should be considered to be like its own nation, right? So then people appointed from the different different countries maybe um, kind of set up some sort of its own governance and you have your international um, passport, right? <laughs> and if you're coming from another country, you have to follow the laws that are being put in place by space um, specifically. And it's not necessarily being policed 100% from Earth um, as much as it you know, in this world where there's factories and whatever on Mars, right? It's being it's being policed already from space, mm. um, and you show your passport upon entry. You know, you get stamped with a really cool entry stamp, right? <laughs> like a really awesome one. I'm down for cool entry stamps. Probably one that has like the rules written on it. Like, uh, what's that country in uh, that little island? There's this awesome little island that has on their visa on their front page when you get stamped in. It has Maldives, like, I think. Uh, oh, maybe, maybe, not. maybe, but I don't think so. And they, but they have their whole like this whole contract that you have to sign to be yeah. able to enter. And mm-hmm. space should have the same thing. I mean, well, I number think, one, don't open the hatch. <laughs> I think whether or not it's written on the passport or entry visa, 
that's implied when you enter a country that you have of to course, abide of course. by. Um, I just think you make it clear. And it should be done in like purple and green and blue ink stamp that's like intentionally metallic. I think my biggest question would be who gets to formulate this nation and who gets to decide its laws. And I think the same problems that I brought up earlier would be true of this international country or inner interplanetary country, whatever. Can we call it um, the United States? I actually of Mars? think that the it would even United violate planets I, of space. I think to formulate that country would actually violate this treaty because then a country would be owning space, even if it's a space country. You have a private corporation in the space country. According to this treaty, that corporation would be under the jurisdiction of their origin country. Hmm. Right. So then we have a potential conflict between, inter, uh, you know, uh, space nation and I mean, Russia. Right. Because the company that's located on Mars is a Russian company, but it's in space nation. And if there's a conflict there, then it becomes a conflict between space nation and Russia. Hmm. I think that. The when was this treaty written? Like was it sixty seven? Like it's time for an update anyway, right? Like hundred percent. Like it needs to be updated one way or the other. And so some of that language could in my space country theory like plan, Mm -hmm. um, it could be just re like that could be where it's written. So who do you think should get to decide how the space country operates? I think that the problem that we need to be aware of from the get go is that Regardless of who does, it needs to happen because right now people, space lawyers, which is a thing. You can be a space lawyer. I Gosh, thought that was amazing. I'm going to be a futurist space lawyer when I grow up. Do it. Why don't you be, you can be a futurist first and <laughs> then a space lawyer. I can be both. Oh. Simultaneously, space when lawyer. I'm not doing my space lawyer work, I can be a futurist. Lovely. <laughs> Lawyers or space lawyers are saying that the hole that the outer space treaty, treaty leaves open for private companies is essentially like the land rush of the 1860s or 1850s, whenever that was, that it is so incredibly wide open for companies to do whatever they want. Except space is, as we currently know, not previously occupied by their groups of intelligent life. True. but just Whereas the, the land rush occurred at the expense of Native Americans. For the dark side of the moon, according to the professor. Right, sure. <laughs> yep. The professor. <laughs> but it still leaves open the problem of, let's say that SpaceX gets ends up taking over the entirety of the moon. Like, the, because there's no law really against it of, com- of a company doing it. Let, SpaceX is still having problems or was a couple of years ago getting like actual airplanes up with people or spaceships up with people to faraway planets. And I know it's still in the works and that the next mission that people saying they can buy for is like 2023 or 2022. It's at least a ways out still, but let's say that they do. Let's say that once they hit that sonic boom of just being able to cook people to all of the planets in our solar system. Wait, system. cook people? To you know, them? like when, you, when you're when you cooking, like you're you're going really, really fast. Like I don't think people say that. I don't think That's people say that That's a little cannibalistic. To be that? fair, I am against cannibalism. What about I, you guys? I have heard that. <laughs> to be fair? It depends on the situation. Oh, Whoa, my. Oh, interesting. Stay tuned for our next series on morality. I'm and terrified. Whether or not it's okay to eat people. Absolutely terrified. I think we need an international organization to curb this <laughs> ridiculousness. For the record... When to say someone is cooking and to say it as the, their speed, it is a usual euphemism that I've heard in the U.S. repeatedly in Arkansas. So okay, so they're, ship, so they're they're shipping people to the moon. Shipping people okay. to the moon. Let's say that SpaceX is able to send just tons of people over the course of the next decade, and we don't up- update the law at all. That people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to take their trip, move there, start colonizing. They're part of the SpaceX nation, and SpaceX gets to decide what to do with these people that are on more planets than we currently have and they all of the problems that could come about let's say that spacex decides to implant some sort of mind control thing into every person or train everyone as militarized and saying if you are flying with us we they put it in their fine print that's to say 
we could kill you if you don't fight for us in the event of international war or intergalactic war. And let's say that the UN puts together an army. I am thinking very futurist right now, but I'm thinking of all the problems that could come about if a private company could cover planets. It is terrifying to me to think of private companies covering planets because of that same kind of thought process. Just the absolute unregulated amount of shenanigans that could get brought up. What are your thoughts, James? Um, I think, so a few things. With my straw like, man. If they're in, pay SpaceX to take them to the moon. I think the first thing we need to know is what is SpaceX doing on the moon? Are they running? I mean, they're not just going to let people live there. They have to get something out of it, right? So they're harvesting some resource. So to go to the moon, you're on a work contract mm-hmm. to work on the moon. But with, with that country or company. I mean. With that company. Right. But not necessarily. Oh. But not necessarily because people will pay a lot for an experience, right? Sure. So like people who go skydiving. No, no, no. But like if, you ex- if you're paying for the experience, you go there and come back. Unless you're going there just to live there. But not, but then, but it, it's a trip, right? So then it's if like I a go, SpaceX I, luxury apartments. On but, the or like some sort of a, yeah, like Which go to a hotel, go for a few days. But that would technically be illegal. Why? Because they would have to, I think you would have well, to you'd, be I going mean, as a harvester in order to go. But there isn't any but you revo- Well, you're saying we're revising this treaty they, anyways. Yes, true. Okay, so you oh. go to the moon and you're working to, you're working for SpaceX on the moon or you're there for leisurely, you know, you're playing golf on the moon, yep. right? So you enter into agreement with SpaceX it's a voluntary agreement because SpaceX cannot enslave you to go to the moon, <laughs> right? Because yeah. that's against, you know. That's against so most, most laws. If you were, let's say you're a U.S. citizen, you sign a contract with SpaceX to go to the moon. Within the contract is stipulated that they will implant a chip into your mind. You do not have to sign that contract, right? No one is forcing you to go to the moon. Go ahead. But they don't have to be honest about what they're implanting in you, right? You, They could say, hey, this is to be able to, we're putting a chip in you to be able to monitor your blood pressure and your heart rate and all of these other things. Sure. But because it's a private, unregulated, or minorly regulated corporation or less regulations because it's private, they can add other things into it without being completely upfront and honest, like the it has no fat, which is true, but it's full of sugar. It... It is to regulate your blood pressure and your heart right. rate, which is true, but it also That's is like a poison so, thing. That so again, as the signer of a contract, I th- well, I think it both it's both ways. Like I don't think in this case, SpaceX should be required to abide by what the contents of the contract are, and they can't. You can't change a contract without agreement from both parties, usually. Right. Right. Um, and so, in that case, I think you're signing up for what SpaceX has to offer, which is a chance to work on the moon. And if they're, if you sign and agree that they're going to put a chip in you and you're like, okay with that, I mean, I wouldn't be okay with that to begin with any chip. So if you're okay with them putting in a chip, a chip in you, knowing that the technology is probably, I mean, they put you in the moon, they could probably remotely change what the chip is gathering. Mm. Right. So, I mean, I think you have to be informed on going to the moon. Like, is this a good life decision for you at this point? What are your finances? Do you have a four-year degree, you know? Like, <laughs> does, your, does your spouse want to go? Do your parents want you to go? Do you have kids? I mean, these are all important questions. How much are they paying you to yeah, harvest what's the, the bathroom moon? situation like up there, you know? I think one way that we could reconcile the two would be, like, if we're talking about governments owning space versus private companies and we're afraid of how private companies could run amok, but we're also at a loss for how governments can be truly held accountable to each other as well as to their constituents. One way that I think could help this is if there, if in the outer space treaty or in some updated version of some sort of outer space constitution, private companies are allowed to harvest, but they have to put forth a percentage of it to the world, meaning towards whatever humane organizations that like a tax yeah like a like a outer space okay. tax but but it would be private companies like i'm thinking like the east india trade company kind of like that they they had 
a... You're trying to model after the Eason? There's some significant problems with that. Definitely. But there's there's also significant problems with uh, the model that we have of Jamestown, that a private, private company just kind of like rolled up and wanted to do what they wanted to do and sent people, and they there was no real oversight from government, partly because like emailing and calling were not a thing, but there and it probably wouldn't be a thing if you're on the moon. Very true. It'd be the same kind of problem. You'd have a little bit of time before one thing could be heard by the other party. Not a quick airplane trip. Right. So my follow-up question would be, does outer space ownership slash harvesting fulfill the outer space treaties description of space as being a province for all mankind? I'm trying to think of a way that we can put those two together where any option that we have goes back to the premise of space and our use of it being a province for everyone, not just the elite, not just the people in power, not just private companies. I think by nature of space travel, only those who are able to afford it and have power are going to be able to access it. The idea that harvesting space is going to be equally beneficial for all of mankind is an illusion. Mm. Yeah. If you're harvesting from the moon, you are a strong country or a powerful corporation that has the means to do that. Somalia is not going to be on the moon mm. unless something crazy happens. Unless someone from every country joins the international or international international space country. But then again, who calls the shots, right? Like if you have the space country, someone's going to fund it, right? Because you're going to have some kind of social security net maybe on the moon. Maybe for not at the beginning. Like, maybe you, you make it because you're selling your resources and pieces of your land to other people, right? So then I think power, more powerful countries and corporations have a lot to lose in that scenario because you're giving equal representation hmm. to Eswatini versus the United States. I'm very into powerful countries and rich corporations not benefiting the most from space exploration. <laughs> She's very uh, into it, yes. <laughs> so how do we reconcile it? Because I have no idea. I'm still at a loss for this. I don't think we do. That's the nature of this podcast, isn't it? I think Being that we reconcile it because by sending me to space, I will boldly go where few men have gone before and even fewer women <laughs> and run space on behalf of all of mankind. I will be staying on Earth <laughs> for the rest of my life, <laughs> regardless of who's in charge of space, to be honest. I guess with that thought, I'll leave you all with a closing quote, which I think will conclude our episode well. So it comes from Margaret Mead, who is a cultural anthropologist um, and author and speaker. We are at a point in history where a proper attention to space, and especially near space, may be absolutely crucial in bringing the world together. And once again, you've reached the inconclusive end of the inconclusive podcast. Sharing is caring. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Also, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the inconclusive podcast. Talk to you next time. Thank you.